Last week, I had the privilege of preaching Christ from John chapter 2, where we talked about Jesus at the wedding at Cana. The title of that sermon was The Good Wine, because it was said twice that usually the good wine would be given first, and then the, the, less, the inferior stuff would be given. They did give the good wine first, but it ran out. Ultimately, Jesus provided a blessing of wine, this liquid celebration, and it was the good stuff. In that scene, we see that Jesus came in incognito to do this unexpected, pleasant miracle. Now he leaves the scene in Galilee, traveling through Capernaum, south to Jerusalem, 16 miles of travel. These 16 miles made a world of difference as we see Jesus, who is this once depicted as a quiet and gentle person at a wedding, to this scene that we just read of, of Jesus no longer as the guest of the house, but the guardian of this house. Now, I want to respectfully say this. Outsiders who look into this passage with human eyes may look at these two passages and think, this is weird. First, you got this happy Jesus who is doing all these miracles that are blessing the people. Now we have loud and boisterous Jesus. To the outsider, it may seem borderline schizophrenic. As we read this passage, it may seem a little jarring, moving from celebration to damnation. So how do we reconcile these two images of Christ that we have read in these two weeks? The lowly guest of the house to this passionate guardian of the house. Now, we could answer this in a number of different ways. We could answer it from the biological, psychological, social perspective in which Jesus was fully human, just like any of us are. He experienced a whole different range of emotions. He experienced happiness and sorrow and loneliness and love and excitement. And here in this passage, we see yet another emotion. He is angry. It is important for us to understand the humanity of God in the person of Jesus Christ. However, unlike us, Jesus was able to experience these full range of emotions without sin. In this, not only do we see the humanity of God, but we see the godness of his humanity. He felt emo the emotion of anger without sin. Think about the times that you were angry. I think about the times when I was angry. I would say about 95% of those times I, I was sinfully angry. You could spend a whole 
meditation on the fact of what it means to be angry yet not sin. We look at these two portraits of Jesus and we could answer it the biological, psychological, social, spiritual way or we could just look at the text to help us reconcile these two different images of Christ in our mind. I think of specifically verse 17 in your text. As Jesus does these zealous acts, it says, and his disciples remembered that it was written, quoting the Psalms, Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal. Zeal is a powerful word. It is a strong and passionate emotion. It is this burning or this intense devotion or desire for someone or something. I've often been zealous when I'm watching my favorite sports team at, at uh, different events. I've got the experience of sitting next to overzealous parents who are screaming and shouting and making a fool out of themselves as they, as they cheer on their child. I, see, I saw Zill in this room as people would sing to the Lord with devotion and not even thinking about it, raising their hands in adoration of our God. The disciples reflected on the zeal of Jesus and the zealous actions that Christ does, this uproar in the temple is reminding them of something that they read in Psalm 69. Now let me give you the context of what is happening in this Psalm. King David was enduring intense and prolonged hatred that endangered his life. Not only did this hatred affect him personally, but it also caused division amongst him and his family members. People openly mocked him and ridiculed him for the zeal that he had for the house of God. This relentless persecution that David experienced made him wonder if the Lord had abandoned him. Despite all this public perception of the troubles that's, that's, it seemed that it stemmed from wrongdoing, but it didn't. The true cause of his suffering was because of his unwavering zeal to the house of the Lord. Within the psalm, the veil is lifted for but a moment, and we realize that he is ultimately being attacked because God is being attacked. In other words, if God is in their crosshairs, then you being in alignment with him will be in the crossfires as well. I read Psalm 69 verse nine, which says, because zeal of your house has consumed me, the insults or the rebukes of those who rebuke you have fallen on me. 
Today's passage, I've tongue-in-cheek said, it's the tale of two zeals we see. Number one, we see the slowly fading zeal of the Jews. And number two, we see the all-consuming zeal of Jesus. So let's pit these two different zeals amongst each other as is seen in the text. The slowly fading zeal of the Jews. Given in the text and the background that we know about the Passover and the temple, we see that there was a slow and fading zeal of the Jews. It moves from the celebration of the feasts to a focus on convenience and then to compromise within the temple. And then ultimately, we see at the end of this passage, corruption. Celebration, conviction, compromise, then to corruption. Let's see this digression that we, that we see in the text. Celebration, verse 13, it says, the Jewish Passover was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Every year in the month of Nisan, the 14th, that is from March to April, our time, the Jewish people would observe the Passover. It's a seven-day feast where once we saw Jesus in John chapter 2 celebrating a seven-day feast in a wedding, then turns to a seven-day feast celebration of the liberation of his people. The fact that they were liberated from the bondage of Egypt and make a covenant to their God. Where once they were not a people, now they have become God's people in Mount Sinai. We see celebration then turn to convenience. We read, continuing in verse 14, it says, in the temple... He, Jesus, found people selling oxen, sheep, doves, and he also found money changers sitting there. Now it is important to clarify that the selling of animals and exchanging of money during the Passover was not a sinful act. In fact, it was a necessary component of the observances that happened in the celebration during this time, people from all across the world would come to Jerusalem, the city of God, and specifically to the temple, to the place where God's glory and presence dwelled. Given the widespread nature of the pilgrimages, it became necessary for financial transactions to happen. People with different coinage from different uh, countries Money exchanges needed to happen in order for them to do business within the city. Furthermore, the ability to buy and sell animals was crucial as well because as a person would travel, it would be really, really difficult to travel with animals and you risk that that animal could get injured and then not be the type of sacrifice that you could give at a temple. It was a blessing for the buying and selling of animals. It was convenience for people to be able to travel and be able to get the appropriate sacrifice for them and their families. 
But then we see the compromise. We see this compromise in three words. In verse 14, it says, in the temple. Within the temple, the most, in the center of the temple is the most holy of holies. It is the place where only the high priest could access. The innermost part was considered the holiest place that was reserved for the holiest rituals. In, the, in concentric circles from that center, you have the holy of holies, and then you have the court of the priests. And in that concentric circle, we would have the priests doing these priestly duties that would lead to the forgiveness of the people. Outside of that court, you also had the court of, of the Israelites, or more specifically, the Israelite men, where they would gather and worship and participate in, the, in these worshipful events. Following, we have the woman's courtyard, which was designated to Israelite women. And then finally, that larger piece out there, the outermost ring, you have the court of the Gentiles. It is widely agreed by scholars and archaeologists that it was in this court that the exchange of money occurred. Imagine for a moment that you are a God-fearing Gentile. You have just recently converted to Judaism and you have made Yahweh your God. You're excited as you have raised up all this money to travel hundreds of miles away with your family to go to this city of God. As you go into the temple, you quickly realize that there are limitations placed on you and your family. When you get into the temple to pray, you find yourself stationed outside in the temple or in the, in the court of the Gentiles. Nevertheless, you gather and you pray and you seek the face of your heavenly father. However, as you are trying to immerse yourself in prayer, your senses are overwhelmed by the sights and smells that you, that you see and you hear. The air carries an unmistakable scent of a barn, tainted by the odors of animals, excrement, and urine. To add on to this, in the background, you hear vendors, uh, vendors clamoring and screaming, get your spotless lamb here, discounts, discounts, exchange money, discounts, are, you can find it at our booth. The atmosphere was not worshipful, it was a zoo. Instead of solemn reflection and a sound of intimate prayer, you hear the bellowing cattle and bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition and holy adoration and prayer to our God, you hear noisy commerce. The house of prayer has become the house of noises and smells. Noises and smells that you would have never imagined to, to be experiencing when you're worshiping her God. 
You see, the Jews were zealous, but they were zealous about the wrong thing. As a Gentile, you were an afterthought. The temple dealings were all Jewish-specific, Jewish-oriented practices. Their zeal and passion was for Jewish identity, their Jewish pride, and in the midst of a Roman government, Jewish nationalism, which drowned out the worship of God-fearing Gentiles. Their passion and zeal for their Jewishness led them to insensitively overlook the worship of the Gentiles. Their zeal for this Jewish nationalism made Gentile worship collateral damage. If the lack of forethought in this was able to speak words, it would say to the Gentiles, go home, you are not welcome here. How would you feel as a God-fearing Gentile entering the scene with all its sights and all its smells? The zeal for this Passover has slowly faded from celebration to compromise. Now let's, let's look at this zeal in comparison to the next zeal that we see in the passage. It is the all-consuming zeal of Jesus. Verse 15. How does Jesus feel about this? He tells us exactly how he feels in verse 15. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the temples. He said to those who were selling doves and Look at these exclamation points. Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. This gentle guest at a wedding has become an uproaring guardian. In all actuality, he is saying, how dare you turn my father's house into a house of commerce? How dare you Jews allow this heinous scene to happen? How dare you priests allow this to happen in complacency? How dare you religious leaders for orchestrating such a damnable, degenerate event to happen in the house of God? Jesus in his grief for the Gentile people and for his devotion for his Holy Father cries shame, degeneracy. As the disciples reflected on this zealous act of Jesus, it says in verse 17 that it reminded them of Psalm 69, zeal from your house will consume me. I think there's a double entendre both in that passage and in Psalm 69 and in this passage that we see here today. 
You see, the zeal of the house of the Lord did consume this new King David, this one who is greater than David. But then it also led to another kind of consumption, the consuming of Jesus. We see this power struggle amongst the Jewish leaders as they speak, speak out against this uproar of Jesus. They call out to him in verse 18, so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us that you are doing these things? Instead of humble repentance, they double down in their action and they say, how dare you cause this uproar? Tell us by what authority you are doing this riot in the temple square. The religious leaders demanding force of their accusation is met by a demanding force of Jesus' encrypted response. Verse 19. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. To the religious leaders, this was lunacy. This was foolishness at its finest. And in response, they say, how dare you say that you will lift up this temple in three days? It took 46 years. And in fact, it was still under renovation and didn't continue or it didn't, uh, it wasn't finished until 36 years later in which four years later, it was destroyed. How dare you for saying that it will take you three days. It has taken up to this point 46 years. Now this is interesting in the text. You see this power struggle, you see this argument. And if I were one of the disciples, you would think, now Jesus, you are all powerful, you are all wise you know exactly how to speak in this situation. They are pointing out your foolishness. So tell them, tell them the wisdom of God. But is met by silence instead. I never took a debate class, but usually when there's an argument that happens and you speak and give your argument and then they point out the lunacy of your argument, and you don't say anything in return, it seems like you have lost the argument. You see, from a human perspective, it seems like Jesus lost this argument. Jesus and his disciples lost that day. Interestingly, these zealous words and actions we see in Matthew 26 then become the very zealous actions that bring him to his consummation. Let me just read to you Matthew 26, 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they would put him to death, so that they would consume him. But they could not find anything, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, Two who came forward stated, this man said, 
I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The zealous actions and the zealous words of Christ are then twisted. He did not say that he will destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple. He was actually uh, foreshadowing what they would do to him and what would happen to the temple in the future. Destroy this temple. And they twist it and they say, he has said that he will destroy this temple. Upon this grounds, we can consume him. And as Jesus loses that argument, and as Jesus is then, uh, his words are taken and twisted, and it it ends up bringing him to trial, to be whipped, to be mocked, to be scorned, to be hung, naked on a cross. And the religious leaders, you can imagine looking at him, mocking at him, mocking him and saying, look where your zeal has brought you. It has brought you to your demise. But we as Christians know the end of the story. Jesus did not stay dead. He didn't lose. On the third day, he rose again. And because of Christ's resurrection, the disciples never read the scripture or never remembered his words in the same way ever again. The resurrection gave them a new hermeneutic, a new form of glasses, a new perspective to be able to read this seemingly lost argument. It says in verse 21, the narrator interjects, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. So this is after the fact. When he was raised from the dead, they had a new hermeneutic. They had a new way of reading that loss. And it says that they remembered that what he said, and then they believed the scripture and the statements that Jesus had said. You see, it seems at that point as if these disciples have lost. They didn't lose the argument. Jesus finishes by answering their argument, not by words, but through action. Action of the death, burial, and resurrection. So as we come together and as Christians at Resurrection Church, I want us to reflect on this resurrection for a moment. I want us to look at some reflections of the zeal that Jesus had for this temple. The disciples were led to reflection after the resurrection of the zeal that Christ had And now I leave you with this question. If we are Christians, if we are little Christ who are supposed to have the same type of zeal that Christ had in this temple, does your zeal mirror the type of passion and desire of of Christ that he had for this temple? 
I leave you with these two applications. Number one, we can kindle this zeal by remembering with zeal the consummation of Jesus. The zeal that Jesus had for his father's mission and his father's work to redeem a people. God's way and his zeal made Christ's way and, and works here on this earth sometimes didn't make any sense. And then he, didn't also, he also didn't try to win every single argument, but he trusted his father. Ultimately, this passion and zeal led to his consummation, his death, his carrying of the cross. But as we consider this consummation of Jesus and his resurrection, it then gives us new eyes and a new perspective to read scripture. We see the consumption of Christ as illumination of the word. We see the consumption of Christ as freedom from the bondage of our sin. We see the consumption of Christ as giving new life to us today. Secondly, we should, we should kindle the zeal by remembering the new temple that Jesus established. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it again, he did rise that temple because he was talking about the temple of his body. And guess what? That temple that was risen in three days is still risen this day. And it will, be, it will be raised for all eternity, never to be cast down and compromised ever again. Number two, we can remember that this temple of God's body is growing. In Ephesians chapter two, we see that Christ is the cornerstone of this temple. And we in this room are building blocks. He is continuing to raise up this temple and build it. And consider the zeal and passion that Jesus had for the building up of this present temple. Do you have the same zeal or passion or fervor of the building of this temple? What about the building blocks of your family and your unbelieving neighbors and your friends and your unbelieving coworkers? Jesus is continuing to build this temple. Are you passionate and are you zealous about the growing and the building up of Christ's body? <laughs> Number three, we remember that the temple is holy. <laughs> The apostle Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you? This means that our individual bodies in both corporately and individually is a temple to our God. If Jesus were to walk into the temple of your life and in, 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 into your temple of your body, how would he react? Would he react with passionate zeal? Or would he say, well done, thou good and, per and, and, uh, and thou, thou good and faithful servant, continue down the, the race that you have gone. 
How would Jesus react if he were to enter the temple of your life? Will he see a person who is zealous and faithful to our God? Or will he see a push toward comfort and convenience leading to complacency, consumerism, and compromise? Oh, may the zeal of our Lord and his household cause us to repent of our sins, both the big sins that we see and and the little sins that are within our own hearts, that we would have the type of zeal that Christ had in the temple. For we are little Christ. In the same way that the zeal of our Lord led to his giving giving down of his life. When we as the body of Christ, align ourselves with Christ, we are in the cross fires of those who hate God. And so let us be reminded in our culture today that although it may seem that we are losing, we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the zeal of your house would consume us today, that we would remember that it is ruling, that you are ruling and reigning for all eternity. Your body is raised in its glorified state. We also know that you are the chief cornerstone and you are continuing to build this body. Jesus, help us to have a zealous compassion and passion to share the love of Jesus to those around us. And Jesus, help us to remember the holiness of this temple, that you have sanctified us to be people that are good works, that are people of good works, so that people will glorify you through our good works and see you in heaven. So Jesus, we thank you for your eternality. Thank you for your growing power and for your holiness. In Christ my pray, amen.